You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Crew, this is Mark Hatmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Might um, be a little jazzed and jumped up today, just coming off a weekend of adventure on the river. So you know how that kind of gets down in your marrow bones and makes you feel just fine. Uh, the uh, title of today's uh, fun is The Day Jiu-Jitsu Died in Paris, right? A little bit of a provocative uh, title there, but stay with me. It's, uh, there's a lesson more than just matching style against style or whatever. And make sure my, my thoughtful uh, tacticians and uh, strategic warriors are, should find a lot of food for thought here. And uh, the, particularly the, all three sections we'll be running through. So let's look to a single uh, historical instance that illuminates a lesson in task saturation, or what Musashi called sword flowers. Now, here, jiu-jitsu just happens to be the vehicle of the combat strategy lesson. The art is not being picked on, not at all, because we all know it is formidable, and if you doubt it, it's formidable. You've not played against uh, skilled or even semi-skilled jiu-jitsu tacticians. So let's be clear on that. This is not a knock on jiu-jitsu. It is a knock on a sometimes how even experienced people uh, can fall to a little bit of a cognitive trap here. The focus here is less the art itself than it is the mind of the combat athlete that fixes beyond good sense or good health. Now, we're going to begin in France and then spend some time in a Black Hawk chopper cockpit and how we got to uh, uh, train these awesome, fierce fighters and then allow a samurai to throw some shade and then wind up hopefully with our pupils dilated for wiser tactics and strategy choices. So let's go to early 20th century France and also be prepared. I do not speak French. I only have uh, my uh, my poor grasp of English and perhaps my even poor grasp of uh, Comanche uh, to, uh, to weather the, uh, the language storms. But here we'll be dealing with some French. And uh, so be prepared for hilarity instead. So uh, early 20th century France, we've got Edmond Desbonnet, was a physical culture purveyor and entrepreneur. As a matter of fact, if you uh, read, would rather read this, and I'll put the link on it, you can go over and look at the blog, and I've uh, thrown up a photo of Mr. Desbonnet, and you can't doubt that this guy was uh, clearly jacked, all pre-steroids, gorgeous stuff. I mean, it's all true hard work, uh, no help along the way. Anyway, back to Mr. Dave Bonnet. Like all good businessmen, he kept an eye on how to increase his clientele, right? So, during a trip to London in 1905, he encounters a physical exhibition that was currently all the rage in London. That was the, uh, quote, exotic art of Japanese jiu-jitsu, unquote, which actually was judo as it it looked at that time. So, uh, we can kind of say jiu-jitsu, judo are going to be kind of uh, synonyms for one another throughout the rest of this uh, little sermon here. At the time, uh, Taro Miyaki was wowing the public and physical cultures alike with his adept use of leverage to toss larger and stronger ones willy-nilly, right? So, Debonet sees an opportunity. So, he hires Miyaki and Miyaki's equally able colleague, Kanyana, uh, Kananya, to come to France for a few months to teach his core cadre this new sensation. Now, the French public is likewise enthusiastic for this new form of martial art. Now, Debonet then contracts, I mean, con. Uh, contracts Ernest Regnier, a combination man, well, that is a boxer who is also a wrestler, to go to London and learn that all he can from Miyake and Kananye. Uh, uh, Kananye, sorry, I'm going to pr- mispronounce the French and the Japanese here. And then uh, De- uh, Regnier is then to bring this all back home and teach the art in uh, De Bonnet's establishment. Well, Regnier is, was not only an able boxer, wrestler already, right? he was also a powerful man, similar to a De Bonnet. He's a little bit on the small side, but still yet, uh, he took to this art like a duck 
about to water. So here we got who's already strong. He's fit. Uh, he's, uh, he's a boxer and he's a wrestler. Ready? No, these are formidable arts. And he's going to also overlay on top of that another, another formidable art. So stay with us. Renier is nothing to sneeze at. Renier is immediately smitten by the art. And he thinks, and thanks to his conditioning base and his solid foundation in wrestling, he is soon deemed as able as his worthy instructors. Now, the uh, newly combat-evolved René then returns to France, and to show how much he has a commitment to the new way of thinking, uh, to this new Japanese jiu-jitsu, he decides, as they called it then, to Japanize his name. So he starts calling himself René. Uh, he pronounces it, so the spelling goes from R-E-G-N-I-E-R. He changes it to R-E hyphen, capital N-I-E. So, in his mind, he's showing a good deal of respect and how much his allegiance has switched over to this new form. So, in the summer of 1905, Debonet opens a studio in the upscale Champs-Élysées quarter of Paris and dubs it the Japanese School of Jiu-Jitsu. Now, this thing is a rousing financial success. And Rengi, uh, Miyaki, and Kanaya become celebrities touring the continental capitals together giving demonstrations. Everybody just is loving it, going ape for it. So Rengi, again, our French-Japanese name, uh, sees the financial success and decides to go it on his own without Debonet. And he comes with the idea of a moneymaker of an exhibition to bring in more uh, eyes on it and make more people want to sign up. With the confidence and his newly mastered art, he schedules himself to fight all comers at the Folly Berger. So the evening of 30th, uh, November 30th, 1905, uh, one of those all comers that stepped up for the challenge happened to be a wrestler. His name was Witzler, W I T Z L E R, and he's described as, quote, savage and surly, unquote. I didn't even give the French uh, how they, because, you know, it would be silly, but savage and surly wrestler named Witzler. So here we have the opponents there. Uh, Witzler possesses good condition, but only one art, that of wrestling. Whereas Rainey, he has good conditioning and boxing and wrestling and the ace in the hole of jiu-jitsu. In short, he's no stranger to any type of scrum. All right, these are all real arts, real deal stuff. Got good conditioning. So how does this match of the triple threat celebrity uh, go against this single arted challenger? Well, Witzler opens up with a headbutt to the nose and then pummel Rainey's face so thoroughly he's unable to continue because he can't see through the blood. Now, all fads must end, right? But this event sped the death of uh, this one for Parisians. Business after this debacle dried up and Debonet closed his Champs uh, Lisi's Jiu-Jitsu school soon after declaring, quote, Jiu-Jitsu was dead, unquote. Now, let me emphasize here. No, jiu-jitsu clearly was not dead, all right? Merely this fashionable moment was, all right? And this match did not prove the superiority of wrestling over jiu-jitsu because Daniel Witzler clearly wasn't even using what we'd call kosher wrestling. He, he, he stepped outside the boundaries of that. Uh, what the match did do, though, was to highlight and spotlight the hazards of task saturation, which brings us to, and you know, some people stay with me in this through line. Some people might see such things as uh, a filler and you go, know, what, what, what are you changing the horses in the middle of this story for? Now, these are all on the single combat thread here. This brings us, uh, take a look at how we have to train our Black Hawk helicopter uh, pilots. The human animal often reacts less than ideally in chaotic or unfamiliar circumstances, right? Now, hence the importance and value of intense methodical training for military, law enforcement, combat athletes, etc. Training for chaos with chaos in mind is not a 100% bet that you'll perform up to snuff, but it's a nice bit of insurance, all right? Now, task saturation is, in short, being defined as being exceptionally focused on your training protocol to the exclusion of new data. All right, now that is 
it is possible to have an operator, a pilot, performing everything scrupulously in perfect order, no matter what, but to their detriment. That is the definition of task saturation. Let's, we're going to get further into an example to really seek this idea. Task saturation is well studied by the military because the nature of military training requires high performance under so many chaotic circumstances that they will have a higher likelihood of manifesting. So we need operators and pilots and soldiers and sailors to respond well in some uh, god-awful situations, and far more than the standard uh, you know, combat athletes or uh, people who uh, never step outside of the CQB gym or, or whatever. Now, where this can go awry is when one aspect of the hierarchy or a checklist is no longer available or ideal. An operator who is task saturated will fixate on completing the task despite its loss of validity and in face of being a potential harm. Let me give you an example here to hopefully clear this up. There were some puzzling cases of helicopters being ditched in the sea and pilots being found drowned within the cockpit. The latches were not jammed on the cockpit for uh, the escape. And in some instances, harnesses had sheared so the seatbelt seat entrapment was not on the table. Yet the pilot was still trapped, uh, so-called, within uh, the cockpit. It was determined from a bit of forensic uh, backtracking that some pilots were following the ditch checklist so assiduously they continued to struggle with the latch even if the step was no longer uh, required. I mean, there's other examples beyond that, but the, uh, that is they're working with the strap. If the, sh uh, the strap has been sheared, they're still working with the latch. And you didn't have to because the strap was sheared. So we, we, this is not to say, well, these are dumb guys. Now. Oh, hell no, of course not. These are all heroes out there. We do not know whenever chaotic forces are hitting us how we're going to respond. What they did is they kicked over into the training and went to work. The thing is the training had not been scrambled up enough at that time. That's what the military does now. They want to scramble things up. Just we want to do in our own combat training, not become dog and hang on to her stuff so much and then yeah I, I got boxing i got wrestling i know exactly what i'm doing and this is going to apply across broad bases whenever no au contraire this doesn't work it doesn't work for uh the, the black hawk uh pilots and it uh, will not work for us whenever we have new information coming in so some pilots are trying to free a belt or harness latch even in cases where the harness had separated in other words there was no need to release a latch the pilots could have gone on to the next step and swam out and again we can't look at this and think well you know what i would do no i don't know what you would do we none of us know what we would do until we're faced with chaotic extreme circumstances. I mean, the case in point is uh, we had so many rapids to shoot on the river trip we just did here. And this is, I'm not comparing this to, you know, trying to swim out of a, a Black Hawk copter, but every single rapid has a new through line. You got to get up there. You got to survey, figure out which way you're going to shoot this and run the line. And hopefully you pick the right one and, you know, dogleg it just right. Nothing is, none of them are going to be repeated. You can hit that same stretch of river, different flow of water is going to change how things hit. You've got to deal with what that flow is at the moment and not assume that you do one, you know them all. Of course you don't. Now, task saturation is a tough glitch to overcome as it is the opposite of bad form in training. Often bad form in training means you're going to perform poorly because you, you train poorly and with bad form, it's not going to look well in the fight. We know exactly what that is. Trash, uh, task saturation, again, is the opposite. We have an operator, an athlete, so well trained that the protocol will not be broken come hell or high water. Task saturation is seldom, this is the military speaking, task saturation is seldom experienced by good improvisers, folks we would call quick on their feet. Now keep in mind they just don't hire people to show up and, and say, uh, we're not going to train you anything because you're a good improviser. No, they want people who can improvise and are exceptionally well-trained. Uh, so 
we've got to walk the fine line between being very, very well trained with an eye on protocol and having an awake eye, always alert for when the protocol or aspects of it need to be tossed. The military training attempts to thwart task saturation by varying tasks and programming scenarios and training where the protocol must be scrambled. That is forcing improvisation upon the operator. So you learn your your task top to bottom, A to Z, upside down, backwards, and after that, pieces get chopped out and scrambled and moved around all the time. So you need to know everything fluently and then the chaos gets kicked at you. Don't start out with chaos training only. You go chaos first, like with our outer limits drills that we have. You don't do those first. You learn how to move, how to react and do. Then you use your overlay of the outer limits drills. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, have a look at our uh, extremeselfprotection.com and our, our, our street system. Uh, it'll be volume three, outer, uh, outer limits drill. None of that is how to throw hands or, or resist uh, uh, something in self-defense. It's how to train with different overlays on top of it to kill some task sap, uh, saturation, let you know what will manifest or what you might need to toss from your own toolbox. Now, Witzler, that are our savage and surly wrestler, he scrambled Rene's protocol. So Rene was highly trained uh, in jiu-jitsu and boxing and wrestling, and yet whenever uh, he, he tried to respond with jujitsu answers where they no longer apply. So when jujitsu answers apply, they are absolutely manna. They're wonderful, the top notch. When they do not, they are anathema. And again, this isn't just jujitsu. When boxing answers don't apply, no go. When wrestling answers don't apply, or when Krav Maga answers don't uh, apply, all this. We must not rest on assumptions uh, that scrambling our methods enough, though. Sometimes the glitch is in the complexity of the approach itself. Now stay with me here. I'm going to go on to uh, pick up a little bit of samurai wisdom here. Uh, Miyamoto's Musashi's uh, Book of Five Rings is a foundational text in samurai lore. Musashi grouses or complains that he sees the danger. He, he also sees the danger in blight adherence to, quote, just because, unquote, tradition that no longer fits combative realities, right? So he's kind of railing against some tradition that no longer, it might have applied at one point in the past, but no longer fits. And this is the chewy part of Musashi's observation. He also warns that much innovation, now this and scare quotes there, meaning yeah, he's putative, specious. Uh, much of our innovation that comes after tradition, read that as foundational and effective, is equally rife with superfluities. Uh, means he places the blame on turning the war arts into commerce. The supplier needs to keep the buyer at the teat, so to speak, so the so-called master multiplies complexities and training to keep the milk flowing. You know what I'm talking about there? I mean, you could easily point to me and go, hey, Hatmaker, you release a new training uh, 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 program each and every uh, month. Month. Well, it's another chapter of what we're going there. And that's exactly the sort of thing, in a sense, that I'm talking about. If I was increasing complexities, what we're doing with black boxing is to, uh, black box projects, is to continually chop down and trim down. You got to get to the things that are just going to be easier and easier and trim away the fat, go with historical realities, to get it viciously verified, make sure that works. If things get increasingly complex on it, you know, that's not the way to go, man. So let's go to Masashi here. Let's go with a quote. Uh, as I see society, people make the arts into commercial products. They even think of themselves as commodities and also make implements for their commercial value. The attitude is like flowers compared with seeds. The flowers are more numerous than the seeds. There is more decoration than reality. Unquote. So in other words, all martial tactics and strategies have an essence, often a thrusting point of simplicity as the chaos of true battle will support nothing more than the Occam's razor of stripped-down choice. The flowers, the ornamentation may be beautiful, 
But uh, how many are as useful as a headbutt to the nose when you're expecting a collar tie-up? So in a sense, Rene became task-saturated, learning all the ins and outs and tricks and tips of leverage. And uh, what you should have, <laughs> a great, broad, wonderful foundational base in it, as Musashi uh, discusses, but at the same time realize there's a way to get right down and run down the center. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, that Zumbrata may be lovely, <laughs> but there is the pig sticking to contend with whenever it comes to the knife as well. We've got to make sure how much might need to go. I think of the wonderful work the Dog Brothers did. When we take a look at uh, a lot of stick work, then you take a look at it. How does it stand up against this full bore go, go at it? There's uh, foundational work, and then there's work that kind of hacks the, fl- uh, the sword flowers to the ground. Now, again, I could have selected from many an art, you know, boxing, wrestling, Muay Thai, etc., where we see examples of something that is without a doubt effective, undoubtedly effective in most circumstances, and yet still provide the wrong answer simply because it was, uh, it's not the task-saturated answer, right? It's the post-foundational sword flower answer, right? And again, that's the foundation of what we do with our black box stuff for nothing but seeds and rip roaring to the point, old school tactics, historically accurate, visually verified. And I would have to tell you, have a look at our uh, uh, raw or black box project there. I mean, I'll, I'll provide the uh, extremeselfprotection.com. The link will be in the show notes. I'll also give you the link over here to the blog version of this. You can take a look at a, a photo of Mr. Debonet there. Take a look at that uh, awesome physique he built without the, the use of uh, cheating aids. And then uh, so we've got an upcoming uh, uh, boot camp. If you actually want to get uh, hands-on and do some stuff, we'll be doing some planes, knife work, old-school rough-and-tumble work, uh, old World War One and Two combatants from uh, uh, Coach uh, uh, Jim Marks. we got John Miller coming on there doing some mighty twisty sambo leg locks. But, of course, I'll be handling the historical side of things. That boot camp is in August, uh, 20, uh, yeah, August 20th and 21st, and I'll put a link on there if you want to take a look at that. Other than that, just thanks for having ears on this thing, and enjoy your self crew well if you dig what we just discussed today uh, i'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast hell support it if you want i'm not your dad do what you want and if you're a glutton for punishment uh, just visit our website extremeselfprotection.com you'll find links to the blog all of our products and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics <laughs>